Women's healthcare is unique, but it's also often unnecessarily challenging, and that's been unaddressed for far too long. What changes are coming, and how will those changes impact care and affect patient satisfaction? We'll find out on this episode of Shift Shapers. Change either paralyzes or energizes. The choice is yours. You're listening to the Shift Shapers podcast. You're about to learn firsthand from businesses and entrepreneurs who have successfully shaped the shifts in their industries. Get ready to become the change you want to see. This episode is brought to you by Shift Shaper Strategies. In sales, if you confuse, you lose. Clarify your message so you win more clients, crush your sales goals, and build your practice. Learn more at shiftshaperstrategies.com. And now, here's your host, StoryBrand Certified Guide and Chief Transformation Strategist at Shift Shaper Strategies, David Saltzman. For those of us who have women in our lives and are fortunate enough to have women in our lives, and most of us do one way or the other, we've mostly got moms, I guess, you understand after a period of time that the issue of women's health is complicated and oftentimes unnecessarily so. There are docs who don't really understand how to listen. They don't understand because they're not taught. It's not that they're bad people that women present symptoms differently and whatever. And a lot of the people who learn about this stuff, like myself and our guest today, come at this from a place of personal knowledge. We invited Joe Connolly, who's founder and CEO at Visana Health, to talk about that and a couple of other things and some concepts that he's working on, but largely to find out what's being done about this problem, because it's a big issue. And with that, welcome, Joe. Thanks, Dave. It's great to be here pleasure having you. So before we get into the women-specific issue or the more women-focused issues, I'd like you to level set because you're using a concept that you call virtual first healthcare. Can you talk about why and what that is? Yeah, absolutely. So there is a growing virtual first movement across the entire healthcare ecosystem. I think what virtual first care really means is that people are recreating real care pathways and implementing them in a virtual first setting. So this does not mean virtual only, it means virtual first. And the belief here is that most people would prefer to interact in a very convenient and cost-effective way through digital technologies before having to necessarily go in and see a doctor in the office. And so the way that you can think about this is just like a brick and mortar provider, you would have all the same or similar care services, except they are delivered in a virtual setting when possible. So are we talking about, um, for the average listener, are we talking about telehealth on steroids? Yeah, you can think about it as telehealth on steroids. So typically, virtual first providers have lots of ancillary providers to have a holistic care model. So they'll include physical therapists, dietitians, clinical psychologists, health coaches, the technologies that they'll use. This isn't just a simple, you know, me and you are going to do a telehealth visit and you're going to talk to your doctor on Zoom instead of being in the office. It's much more elegant technology platforms that can include really elegant symptom trackers so you can track patient reported outcomes over time. 
time, which then can feed back into your care model so that you can make continuous improvements. The care can be delivered both synchronously or asynchronously. So for instance, you can have a health coach that's talking with a patient every single day for months to make sure that they're implementing behavior changes that you you know are going to improve clinical outcomes instead of just having a, a six-minute session with the patient once every couple months and then they kind of disappear into the ether. So it's a much higher touch care model, but it can also be more cost-effective because you're using more ancillary providers that are lower cost than traditional physicians and because you can deliver and automate a lot of the care, particularly asynchronous care. Define asynchronous care for the audience. So asynchronous care, typically the way that you would do it is text message, email, in-app messaging. So care that's delivered not in real time. Some people can also do asynchronous care with video chats. So you can actually you know, send a video message to a patient to respond to one of their questions to make it be a little bit more personal. But typically it's you know, chat-based healthcare, which I think has picked up steam quite a bit in the last couple of years. That's interesting. Now, in this model, do you also provide more technology for folks in their home so that they can transmit telemetry different data to their physicians or their whoever's treating them? Yeah, absolutely. So lots of virtual first care providers, depending on what disease states they are covering, will have quite a bit of hardware that's integrated in, into their experience. So you can imagine glucometers that have continuous blood glucose monitoring that then feed back into a behavior change cycle. You can imagine scales that measure your weight over time and automatically integrate that information into an app so you can track it and your care provider can immediately see that information. Same thing with blood pressure cuffs, where you can have many more data data points instead of just going to the doctor's office once every you know month or so, and you can actually track whether the blood pressure is increasing or decreasing over time. And so all of those data points help inform the care model and the care that the member actually needs. So we've talked often on the podcast about the fact that user experience seems to be the new differentiator. Tell me how this improves user experience. What kind of feedback do you get from the folks that you serve with this model? So at Visano, we focus on underserved women's health conditions. So I think one thing that we hear time and time again from our users is that they are so thankful that someone is finally spending the time and listening to their stories. So for instance, with a lot of these women's health conditions, they can't explain their entire symptom set to their provider in the six-minute provider visit that they have allotted. Very good providers might spend an hour with their members actually, or their patients actually listening to their concerns and trying to get the root of what's going on. And so for us specifically, we hear a lot of women are dismissed, that a lot of women, you know, don't feel like their providers are listening properly. And because we have a much higher touch care model, a lot of the feedback that we get is, thank you so much for listening to me. Thank you so much for believing in me. And thank you so much for providing this support in a time where I felt really alone. I'm going to ask you a really, really broad question. Do the best you can with it, which is a question I've never really been able to answer properly, and, and you and I share women in our lives with some similar experiences. Why the hell is that? Why is it so hard for physicians, even OBGYNs, to actually listen and understand what a woman's trying to say and not just brush it off as, well, sweetie, that's a woman thing. Everybody has that problem. 
I, part of it, like you alluded to earlier, comes down to some of the medical training where they these types of conditions don't necessarily get as much airtime as they should. I think that there is long-standing biases against women in the healthcare system where they were traditionally excluded from clinical trials. So for instance, women feel heart attacks differently than men feel heart attacks and the symptoms that they present with are different, but we haven't educated people around those gender differences. I think another main cause of this is the fee-for-service system mandates that providers have to spend X amount of time with a patient to maximize their revenue. So they make roughly the same for a six-minute visit as they would a 60-minute visit. And so the healthcare system has set them up to fail in a way because their healthcare system forces them to only spend six minutes with the patient and they need to be off to the next patient instead of affording a much longer initial visit to actually listen to women. And I think an, another big difficulty is that there's a very heterogeneous presentation of a lot of these women's health conditions where a woman with endometriosis on the bowel, for instance, might have bowel-related symptoms and someone with it on the bladder might have urinary-related symptoms. And so it actually takes a very long time to listen and really learn about all these different specific symptoms and make sure that the providers are asking the right questions, which they might not have always been taught in medical school. I mean, I know that those kinds of problems are what in, in large measure is driving the move to direct primary care and then the boom in direct primary care. I'm curious, have you had any examples of, of your model integrating with a DPC practice where a lot of the initial work is done up front and it's done over the phone or video or whatever? We haven't done that to date, but we're actively exploring one of those relationships as we speak because we do think that that would be a very good fit. That's interesting. So you and I talked offline and we've, we both, as I said, had experience with endometriosis and with some other female medical conditions. I, I wonder though, back to the communication, just a kind of a side thought, you focus on serving underserved communities. Do you find that it's even worse for women of color or is it about as crazy each way? Absolutely. It's much worse for women of color. And I think that BIPOC women specifically, there's been countless studies that demonstrate that there are racial disparities in the outcomes of these conditions. They have a harder time getting their clinicians to buy into their symptoms and are more often labeled drug seekers than white women. They have a disproportionate rate of surgeries like hysterectomy and myomectomy compared to white women. So there are absolutely racial disparities in the conditions that we work with. And now, a word from our sponsor. It's a fact. Salespeople and organizations lose opportunities because they don't clearly communicate their value. In today's market, your story is your message. It should be crystal clear, perfectly arranged, and precisely targeted to attract the clients you want. As a certified story brand guide, we use the exclusive SB7 process to create that story and the websites and collateral that deliver it. If your message isn't cutting through the noise, we can help. Visit us at shiftshaperstrategies.com to learn how we can help you find, clarify, and deliver a message that wins clients, crushes sales goals, and builds your practice. In sales, if you confuse, you lose. So learn more and schedule that call today at shiftshaperstrategies.com. That's shiftshaperstrategies.com. And now, back to our discussion. Do you find that your model is, again, from the feedback that you get, that this model is starting to even that out a little bit because the physicians or the treater has the time to actually listen? And in point of fact, the model almost mandates that they take the time to listen. Yeah. So we, in addition to having 
longer times that we're interacting with the patient, we also make sure that all of our providers go through racial disparity training where they are educated on these differences. And we make sure that they are aware of these differences when they're interacting with patients. I think another thing that we try to do is have culturally competent providers where we match our providers with the women that they're serving. So for instance, a BIPOC woman would be matched with a BIPOC provider. And I think a lot of this comes down to the fact that we need to be able to build trust with our patients to keep them engaged over time. And I think traditionally underserved communities have lost trust in the healthcare system for a wide variety of reasons because there's been in endemic and widespread disparities across all different conditions. So I think by having that specific connection with that provider, we can help to build that trust. And then we can use that trust to actually have proper communication of symptoms with that provider in addition to the listening. That way the member actually feels comfortable sharing her exact symptoms with her provider to make sure that we can really get to the root of what's going on. And that symptom communication communication is really, really important because if you don't have that, that's the first step to getting to a diagnosis. And so it's very, very critical that we're able to build that trust with our members. When you say engagement, the first thing, of course, I think is relationship driven, because if you can't build a relationship, you can't get that kind of long-term engagement. Is that something that you guys strive for? And if physician X is the person that I'm interacting with, is that the person that I talk to all the time? Yes, exactly. We 100% believe in having long-term relationships with our members because it's it's really that trust that I just described that you need to be able to build. And when we talk about asynchronous technologies, it's actually much harder to build a relationship through text messaging, for instance. And that's when you can start to get into additional modalities like video visits where you're actually having that one-on-one -on -one communication. And I also think that's why virtual first care models are going to shift more and more to being service-driven instead of just technology-driven because people really want that connection. Healthcare is really personal. And for us specifically, there's a lot of shame and stigma around the conditions that we treat because a lot of them relate to menstruation and talking about periods is still very stigmatized. So it's more critical for us, but I think also critical for all other virtual first providers that they can bring that human element to the table and be able to build that trust with their members. Otherwise, they won't be able to be successful. Well, I mean, in addition, I think in some ways it might be easier, even though it's a longer haul for you guys, because you're dealing with chronic conditions. So it's not as though, you know, somebody broke, broke an arm, it gets set, they go back six weeks later, have the cast taken off. These are places where building a relationship is really key, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Completely agree. And I think we want to have that long-term relationship where members could be with us for years if they need to be that way. And, and they're seeing the exact same provider every single time to build that relationship over the course of however long it needs to be until they, we can get them back to living their life in a healthy way. Are you seeing any interest on the part of the big providers in incorporating this kind of a care model? I think the bigger providers are certainly interested, right? So they, they recently saw the explosion in telehealth through COVID, and they were able to prove really quickly that they actually can stand up telehealth models. I think where they struggle is most providers still operate in a fee-for-service dominant system. And that means that your services need to have an associated CPT code in order to be able to bill for the services. And because a lot of these asynchronous care technologies or health coaching or some of these ancillary providers may not have perfect CPT codes or might have lacking reimbursement, it's difficult for them to stand up these services because that basically means that 
you're going to have to contract directly with every single payer to get each of these different services reimbursed. And that's a, a very long and expensive sales cycle for these providers to overcome. And so I think the, the traditional providers have struggled with it for that exact reason, that because they haven't shifted fully to a value-based care model, that they aren't able to take on these because it essentially just eats away into their margins. I think as you start to see where you could see adoption are IDNs, where they actually have you know integrated payer provider networks, and they're actually taking the risk, the financial risk on for their members, and they are incented to try to reduce the overall total cost of care. So I'm sure Kaiser and companies like that are actually starting to use these care models for their members, and I'm sure they have been for a while. I was wondering if the services that you provide bill off of a normal CPT code structure so typically, no. So most virtual first care providers, because like we've talked about, we want a high-touch care model. We want a tech-enabled care model. But the traditional fee-for-service billing model optimizes for in-face, one-on-one visits with the provider, not for these asynchronous long-term care models. And so for that exact reason, we have to be able to contract directly with payers and utilize different CPT codes in a way that then we can bill for that service in a pre-agreed way and be able to send that bill through claims. So because of that exact dynamic that we just discussed, you actually have to contract directly with payers and you can't just use a typical provider contract when you're working with them. So if I'm a self-funded employer and I'm using your service, what's, what's the delta? What does this save me in cost or does it? So I think speaking more broadly about virtual first providers, it depends on the disease state that you're looking at and what types of services you can actually replace. I think one area that virtual first providers need to do a better job of across the board is having more robust ways to prove cost savings of the overall integrated care model for an overall virtual first model. I think specific virtual first providers can go to payers or self-funded employers and make the argument that they are able to reduce cost savings. So for example, for musculoskeletal uh, companies, they're able to help avoid knee replacements or back surgeries, which can be very expensive. In Visana's case, we're helping women avoid gynecologic surgeries like hysterectomy, which is where our cost savings stems from. So the idea is that if you're able to provide these conservative care modalities early in the disease course, you can reduce how frequently women are actually going to need surgery downstream. And the analog that I would say is physical therapy for back or knee pain is typically difficult to access for a lot of people because it can be, you know, you're driving to the physical therapist, you're having to pay a copay or deductible, and having that service delivered for free virtually very conveniently can increase access, which reduces the need for downstream surgeries. And the exact same concept applies in women's healthcare. That makes sense. So what are the top couple, three conditions that you guys see as a rule in the populations that you serve? Yeah, so we typically see a lot of heavy menstrual bleeding, uterine fibroids, and endometriosis. And I think if you look at the prevalence of these conditions, it, it makes sense. So about 30 to 35% of women will have heavy menstrual bleeding or uterine fibroids, and 15 to 20% of women have endometriosis. So these are very, very high prevalence diseases, and you just don't hear about them a lot because, like I mentioned, there's this element of shame or stigma associated with them because people don't want to talk about how heavy their periods are. People have normalized menstrual pain and said that's just part of being a woman and really getting people to talk about these things is difficult so a lot of times women hide it from plain sight but it's very clear when you talk to women that a lot of women struggle with these conditions and they're looking for solutions to help them 
You know, I wonder if it goes beyond that. I mean, do you look for certain types of physicians with certain types of education? And, you know, we talked in our pre-interview about the fact that my daughter has endometriosis and she's moved a number of times for her job and finding a doc who actually even understands the condition, she finds herself oftentimes in the position of explaining to the doctor what the disease is and how it progresses and what the complications are because they don't know. So do you do anything in particular in terms of building those your network of doctors for folks who have additional training or who are more adept at handling these? Yeah, absolutely. And I like we mentioned in the interview before this, my mom had endometriosis and just could not find a physician that would treat her properly. And she was essentially dismissed. She couldn't even get treatment. And she was told everything from this is just part of being a woman to take some ibuprofen and tough it out to everybody's period hurts, you name it, and she heard it. And I, I think the reason that this occurs is that we have lumped OBGYNs together as one single specialty. They used to actually be two separate specialties and they were eventually combined. I think most OBGYNs, especially in the United States, focus on the obstetrics portion of their business because it's very lucrative. Um, delivering babies makes a lot of money. And so most OBGYNs focus there to the detriment of these benign gynecologic conditions. With regards to what types of providers we look, work with, we typically like to work with providers that have gone just beyond their OBGYN training and have done a fellowship in what's now known as minimally invasive gynecologic surgery. So these are providers who only treat these benign gynecologic chronic conditions that we specifically work with with women. And we find those and identify them through their fellowships and then work with them to figure out what their actual practices are and whether they focus more on endometriosis, maybe they focus more on fibroids, maybe they focus more on heavy menstrual bleeding. And we build out a national network that we can then refer to for in-person providers. That's a brilliant way to do it through their fellowships. I, I like that idea. I mean, I think it makes a lot of sense. We've got a minute and a half left. Where do you see the future? What's your vision of how this plays out and, and where this all goes and how it integrates? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one area where we are seeing a ton of consolidation in the virtual first space. So very large companies like Doctor On Demand and Grand Rounds have merged. And we're just seeing Livongo and Teladoc have merged. And I think what we're going to see is these virtual first front door providers that have integrated virtual primary care, care navigators, behavioral health, all the services that people want to access immediately virtually and have it be seamless into their health plan and paid for 100% by their health plan. We're even seeing virtual first HMOs where they have to use a doctor on demand first before they can get a referral. And then I think what we'll see is virtual first specialty providers. So companies that focus just on MSK, companies that just focus on cardiometabolic conditions like diabetes. And for us, companies that focus on virtual women's specialty care, that then will receive referrals from those um, virtual first primary care providers, and they will actually have a very tightly integrated ecosystem where we will be able to share data freely because most virtual first providers like Vasana are built on a very modern tech stack that allows for much easier data sharing between providers. And so I see this virtual first ecosystem coming together, being very tightly integrated, and being able to share data about our patients freely between providers to help increase care coordination. That's a great vision to have, and, and it's a great place to leave our interview for today. Joe Connolly, founder and CEO at Visana Health. Joe, thank you so much for sharing your expertise. It's a really underserved area, and it's something we need to keep in the forefront, especially those of us who have women we love who have these conditions. Yep. Thank you so much for having me. 
The Shift Shapers podcast is a production of Shift Shapers Strategies and may not be reproduced or quoted in whole or in part without our express written permission. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved.